If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Vancouver, France edition. It's Wednesday, September 3rd, 2014. On today's show, The Cosmopolitans is an Amazon pilot about expats living in Paris. It comes from the director, Whit Stillman. And then Twitch is a website that broadcasts other people playing video games. It was just sold to Amazon for $1 billion. We'll discuss Twitch's improbable appeal with Slate's own Seth Stevenson. And finally, against X, is it time to retire a certain style of polemic? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. It's nice to have you back from Vacation. Uh, yes, it's nice to be back from Vacation. And of course, there's David Hagland is joining us this week, filling in for Dana Stevens. Uh, David, a senior editor at Slate who runs the magazine's culture blog, Browbeat. Hey, David, welcome back to the program. Hey, Steve. All right, well, before we dig in, we have a couple of bits of business. Julia, what's what's up? We have an exciting spate of live shows ahead of us this fall. Tickets for the first two are on sale. Uh, the first, which is the first ever Culture Gab Fest, Political Gab Fest, Smackdown Showdown called Superfest West is already sold out. It's in San Francisco on October 5th. And sadly, uh, tickets have all been snapped up. So uh, we look forward to seeing those of you who got a few of those there. And we are doing a show just a few days later in Los Angeles on Wednesday, October 8th. Uh, we'll have as special guests John August and Craig Mazin from Script Notes, the podcast that Dana and I have both plugged on this show, probably a few other luminaries in that glitzy, glossy town. So come on out. It's October 8th at the Belasco. So run, don't walk to slate.com slash LA Culture Fest, and you can buy tickets for that event today. And don't forget that Slate Plus members get 30% off. So if you sign up for membership, you get that discount as well. We'll look forward to seeing you guys out there. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia, moving on. Whit Stillman is the indie film director whose career broke with the 1990 film Metropolitan. That movie was about young, preppy, talky, well-to-do Manhattanites. He has since become the comedian of manners, or as he once put it, of the mannerliness of the upper bourgeoisie with his films Barcelona and The Last Days of Disco. Paris, meanwhile, is the Ur city of the romantic expat. The two have been brought together in the Cosmopolitans for the Amazon pilot season. Before we talk about it, why don't we listen to a clip? I don't know which stilted annoying scenes should we select. <laughs> you say stilted like it's a bad thing. Um, <laughs> you say annoying like it's a bad thing. <laughs> right. um, the first stilted one at the cafe. All right, all right, all right. We'll, we'll pile on after we listen to a little bit of it. Why don't we, why don't we listen to that clip now? I'll just send it. Oh, my gosh, look. What? I think it's her. 
Gold Coat girl, that, that pretty blonde. Yeah. Her coat's not gold. Well, when we met her, she was wearing an amazing gold coat. What was amazing? It was just incredibly stylish. And for a while, we didn't know her name, so she became Gold Coat Girl. Vicky. Hello. Hi, you're still here. You haven't gone back to... No, no, we live here. We're Parisians. Oh. <laughs> What's wrong with your friends? In a funk. His girlfriend Clemence left him. She dumped him. Well, it was a breakup. You guys have girlfriends with names like Clemence? Yeah, why wouldn't we? We live here. We're Parisians. You're Parisians? Yeah, well, effectively, yes. I mean, we're not living anywhere else. Just teasing. In a rush. Bye. All right, well, David, I'm picking up a, a vibe in the room here. Tell me if I'm wrong. It seems like you enjoyed this considerably more than your boss. <laughs> yeah, I liked it a lot. I like Stillman's movies. Damsels in Distress was disappointing, but his first three, I think, are great. And this felt like a return to form. Um, the scene that we listen to is maybe not the most uh, riveting in terms of its repartee, but I thought there were a bunch of great lines, and I was happy to be in the company of Stillman's dialogue again. And I also enjoyed his direction. I thought that it was a more elegantly directed show than most things one sees on TV. Uh, I loved the the typeface for the subtitles and the the title credits, so I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, Julia, I uh, I think we can let you out of your cage now. I, too, enjoyed the typeface for the (laughs) subtitles and the title credits and scene. Um, (laughs) I confess I was not moved by this show, and I'm trying to put my finger on what galled me about it. And I'm not sure I can do it with much specificity. But I felt like, and perhaps this is what's charming about Whistleman's work to the people who love it, his ambivalence about the characters that he's created here. He's so lovingly made them. He's clearly paid so much attention to the fine details. They exist in a world that doesn't seem quite like our own. They don't really seem like actual humans. They seem like very particular types in a particular Whitstillmanian dollhouse. But I'm not sure whether he's created the dollhouse for us to look yearningly at and think, I'd love to live in that dollhouse, or for us to like smash and sneer at because they say oblivious and stupid things like, oh, it was so sad when your people, your people being from Alabama, lost the Civil War and all those people died, or, oh, we're Parisians now. It's, in, in that scene, the way that scene is played, it's unclear whether that character, whose name is Jimmy, played by Adam Brody, when he says, oh, we're Parisians now, effectively, we're Parisians, we live here. It's unclear whether he's unaware that that's a ridiculous thing to say or fully aware that he's a ridiculous thing to say. Like, it's played down the middle with this ambiguous deadpan that made me hate the whole thing. <laughs> but Julia, but just quickly, Whit Stillman knows that it's a ridiculous thing for him to say. You're saying that that character may not be self-aware enough to know that it's ridiculous. It's unclear that the character knows, and it's not totally clear to me that Whit Stillman thinks it's that ridiculous. Really? Because why are we spending all this time with these people? I don't think... He seems very, they're very burnished and gold and glowing and loving. They're ridiculous, but you're supposed to be like, oh, aren't we charmed to be in the presence of these idle fops? And I was not charmed. David, it sounds to me like she's describing a Jane Austen novel. What's the problem here? Uh, Yeah, and it's funny. Don't you bring Jane Austen into this. (laughs) God damn it, Steve. Low blow. (laughs) It's funny, Julia, because you've actually pinpointed for me one of the things I really like about Whit Stillman's work, which is that ambiguous deadpan. I like that I don't, that it's not so simple as I'm going to, you know, have scorn for these characters or I'm going to be utterly charmed by them. They are ridiculous. They say ridiculous things. I think that that line about the Civil War is maybe the worst in in the pilot. And in general, I thought that Chloe Sevigny's character uh, was sort of off. They, I, it seemed like she and Stillman had not yet figured that character out or or something. Mm-hmm. But in general, I like that these characters are funny, often unintentionally, as far as the characters. I think Stillman intends the humor, but the characters don't necessarily see it. But we do, mm-hmm. and it, and it's funny. And I think you may feel affection for them or not, uh, I think Stillman clearly does, but they're not heroes, obviously, and they're not objects of scorn either. Uh, I, I will, I will, I'll go ahead and cut this baby in half. Look, to begin with, I think we're talking about several nesting dolls of, uh, internesting dolls of irrelevance here. You have entitled preppy emo boys talking about relationships 
in Paris. And not only do they spend their time talking about relationships throughout the entirety of the pilot, right? They talk about relationships as if talking about relationships forms the substance of a relationship, which I think has grown a little old, you know, 40 years after uh, Annie Hall. But that said, I kind of am inclined congenitally to love irrelevant things. And so I was ready to like it. I What I wanted to know was, can these people surprise me? And I think both preppies and Paris are potentially having interesting moments. And uh, we can get into that uh, more deeply. But when it comes to the preppies, what I liked about Metropolitan was that movie came out in 1990. It was at the end of the 80s. It was a decade that both revived and killed the trust funder in a way because revived in the sense that being privileged was no longer in the age of Reagan was no longer uh, totally embarrassing. On the other hand, they weren't eye bankers. They weren't, you know, swaggering uber mention of the financial elite. So they were both revived as a subject of interest because you know, they had all the crap that we covered and want in some ways, but also they were totally musty, Miss Havisham-like uh, anachronisms because they weren't really products of the prevailing energies of that decade. That was really interesting. And and similarly, you know, I mean, now we live in the era of the 1%. Who are these people? I, by the end of the show, I had no idea what the means of support of anybody in the show was. Uh, so overwhelming was Stillman's need to write dialogue about young men talking about women. And then similarly, Paris, you know, Paris is the city of, you know, uh, list them all of, of uh, Hemingway, James Baldwin, uh, Adam Gopnik, uh, a friend of this program, uh, and of me wrote a, a, a terrifically charming book about moving to Paris in the 90s. Woody Allen made a significantly less charming movie about uh, Americans' fascination with Paris. Um, it, you know, Paris is such a interesting object of American fantasy and you need to have as much distance to that as you have to have to preppy characters and Whit Stillman seems perfectly poised to do it I just didn't feel by the end of the show that I knew precisely who these people were and therefore I didn't understand why they were having conflicts there seems to be some for example deep conflicted relationship between this older Italian figure who kind of makes fun of these young Anglo boys for being pushed around by their women and this young rake who seems to have a ton of money who's French and is sort of hosting the party lifestyle of these American boys. They, they appear to hate each other, but I had no idea who they were. So I didn't know why they hated each other and couldn't bring myself to care about it. So I'm moderately interested, but not um, overly attracted to it, to uh, pursue it further, probably. I think that was part of what galled me about it, right? Like that we're in a cultural moment where understanding the mores and social milieu of elites and the 1% and income inequality and how one is to live in the world, given the economic system that we have today, matters deeply. It's like a front page topic, you know, like the biggest bestseller of the year is an economics tome. Like this is something we all care about. And the dollhouse quality of the show, the show did not seem to engage with those issues at all. It doesn't seem to engage with issues at all. It seemed to be set in a you know little diorama that's just a remove from anything one might actually know or care about, both in terms of the issues these characters confront and then in just how real they felt. I mean, the dialogue was mannered, which I gather is part of the appeal. There's charming jokes in it and there's a sort of mannered way of speaking that's faux erudite or something. But it didn't have a ring of truth to me. It didn't have a ring of human truth to to it, the way these characters behaved and acted. They just didn't feel real. And so then I was like, why am I in this dollhouse? What's the point of this dollhouse? And it felt a little bit like what Stillman is like a you know, man playing with dolls in a dollhouse that doesn't have anything to convey to me. David, d- defend <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I, again, you're, you're, you're highlighting for me the things that I like. I mean, Stillman has always struck me as deeply unfashionable. I didn't see Metropolitan when it came out, I saw it much later, so I don't know, you know, what it meant in 1990. But by the time I saw it, it it, it felt like it was from this another planet, basically. And so does the show. It's it's not important. It doesn't pretend to be like Steve. I enjoy unimportant things, <laughs> and I like that this show doesn't uh, bother with uh, things that don't ultimately concern it. I mean, no matter how much interest uh, Stillman showed in the one percent or the economic underpinnings of. 21st century capitalism, his Amazon pilot would not change the world. So I don't mind that he didn't try to. But that's no, but David, I got to cut you off there. That's not the point. The point is a good comedy of manners takes this, this thing that's bobbing on the surface of social reality, which is, you know, people's 
trivial interpersonal interactions and their vanities, their petty vanities, day-to-day vanities. And then it shows you what form of denial that is relative to the actual broader social reality, right? That's what makes a comedy of manners trenchant. And if you just cut away everything that ought to be implied, you know, lurking underneath it, both dark and light, lurking underneath the little charming pieces of dialogue, then it just becomes vaporous. It just evaporates, you know, upon contact with air. That I mean, right? Isn't that isn't that the problem? It's not that it would change the world, but it should it should reflect it in some kind of uh, more profound way. But it reflects it in this dollhouse way that Julia is describing. I, I think even with Metropolitan, there's a sense that. I mean, you don't even know when that movie takes place, really, right? It, it feels like it's at once the 50s and the 80s. Um, that could be said of, of this as well. And I should say, I mean, I don't think that The Cosmopolitans is, is quite at that level. I also did take it as what I hope will be the first episode of a TV show and that there will be more to come, and I would gladly spend more time with these characters. But it is mannered. It is uh, make-believe in a way. So the characters are types. The, the Italian is clearly the cynic. And um, that guy, Hal, is the heartbroken one. And Adam Brody's character is basically the American abroad, the sort of naive character who believes he's full of good intentions and, and has no sense of his own, his own problems or his own faults. And I enjoyed watching them interact. They may not have quite hit upon anything uh, as fascinating as what I hope will come. But I, I like the way that Stillman works. I like that he, br- he introduces these types that you're supposed to immediately recognize as types. No, David, you're right. This is a television pilot, and we should step back a moment to talk about it in the context of, of its own production. So it's one of the crop of Amazon pilots. I think this is the third season of, of Amazon TV's pilots. And, you know, this is a process by which they air the pilots of shows. Everybody gets to see them. There's some uh, viewer feedback on which shows seem interesting. I think the, you know, the execs over at Amazon also take into account what they like and what they think has promised going forward. And then some of the shows go on to get made. So the show that's coming out this year is Transparent, which is Jill Soloway's show starring Jeffrey Tambor as a a man in the middle of gender transition and and his children and family and how they deal with it. And, And in general, I'm excited that this mode of TV production exists. It seems like a way for unexpected voices, unexpected stories, and unexpected people to get unexpected sorts of television made. And am I more glad that this, you know, Whit Stillman pilot exists than another police procedural with like a wisecracking cop? Like, totally. I'm I'm glad it got made. Um, and yeah, I, I might watch another couple episodes. But you know, and so I'm glad it exists. I'm glad it got made. It seems unexpected and surprising. And I hope that it will evolve into something more interesting if it goes forward. All right. Well, the show is The Cosmopolitans. I believe it's available for free if you have Amazon Prime going forward. But I believe, right, anyone can watch the pilot. It's uh, about Paris and preppies and directed by Whit Stillman. We disagreed about it. We'd love to hear uh, what you thought. So come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest and let us know. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk a little bit about our plus segment uh, that gets tacked on at the end. Uh, Julia, what do we have? Uh, because of the contentious fun of that segment, we're going to talk more, not about Whit Stillman, but about Paris in our Slate Plus segment. So Slate Plus members, if you pay five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you get to hear a bonus segment each week from us. And today we're going to talk about whether Paris still holds a special place in the American imagination. And if so, what that place is and what it was. Stick around after the show to listen. And if you haven't signed up yet, check out the benefits at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. There's a wonderful old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip in which Calvin asks Hobbes what the phrase religion is the opiate of the masses might mean. And the television that's next to them murmurs, it means Karl Marx hadn't seen anything yet. Well, it turns out neither had that TV set. Amazon has just bought something called Twitch for $1 billion. Twitch is a website whose principal mission is to broadcast people playing video games. That's right, people watching other people playing video games. A nice, weird little niche business, right? Except it now boasts 55 million unique visitors a month. And as I said, it was just sold for one billion bucks. Seth Stevenson is a Slate contributor. He's also the author of the travelogue Grounded, a down-to-earth journey around the world. He joins us from St. Louis. Uh, Seth, you're not there for uh, Twitch. There, You're there for the anti-Twitch right now for chess. 
Uh, it's another mind sport, though. It's still a mind sport. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Mind sport. Is that actually, is that real, mind sport? Chess is definitely a mind sport. I'm not actually clear. Uh, video games might be an e-sport. There might be a distinction because you need reflexes to play video games. So there is a physical component, whereas in chess, I guess there's stamina and concentration and energy. So there's a physical, I don't know. Sure, they're all mind sports. Okay, well, we're off to a, a roaring start here. I loved your piece, as I like all your pieces, uh, about Twitch. I liked that you went in as something of a skeptic. Uh, the headline of the piece was, Why Would Anyone Watch Twitch? Did you come up with a satisfactory answer? Um, yeah, I mean, we, if you've ever played video games before, when I played video games growing up, you know, when you pass the controller to the other person, that's when you go get a snack. That's when you, you leave the room because it's boring. Why would you want to watch somebody else play the video game? What could be more boring than that? Um, and that's the attitude I sort of went in with, wondering what, how, how could anyone be entertained by this? Um, but I started to see what was going on. It's a, it's a community of like-minded souls who enjoy video games and enjoy watching each other play video games and chatting in the chat box that runs alongside the video of the video games. Uh, and they learn, you know, skills. They're watching superior players play, so they see how do you pass this level. And the, and the superior player will be playing it, and they'll show you, and they'll actually talk you through it. They all have headsets on, and they'll say, here's why I'm doing this, and here's why I'm doing this. Um, and then, of course, there are the sort of sports broadcast uh, elements where a playoff tournament's happening of League of Legends or StarCraft II. So, you know, thousands and thousands of people will tune in to watch these pro players compete against each other. So it's not really any different. That's not really any different than watching a sports broadcast. And the more mellow elements are sort of just a lifestyle channel. It's not that different than watching show after show about cooking or about mm. home remodeling. Mm. Seth, I I should say you've just made your first billion dollars right there, a web channel devoted to watching people go get snacks while <laughs> other people stay and watch Twitch. Huge audience for that. All right. Well, Seth, I have to say I enjoy your answer very much, but I remain flummoxed. And my impression by the end of your piece was that you remained somewhat flummoxed. To what extent is that generational? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just a few years too old to be of the generation that grew up playing these online huge games. Uh, I think most people older, I'm 40, I think most people older than me are completely flummoxed. I think people maybe five years younger than me are flummoxed uh, at why we're flummoxed. Um, they just grew up around these things, and it, it's huge. And the audience for Twitch, when I went on there, it, it appeared to be mostly people in their teens. First of all, mostly boys, and mostly in their teens. And most of the people who were broadcasting themselves playing video games appeared to be around 19, 20, 21 years old, that kind of thing. Most of the top pro gamers that I saw seemed to be around 21, 22, 23. So I do think it is generational. And I, I mean, when I play video games, I, my thumbs simply don't work the way these kids' thumbs seem to work. There's some evolutionary leap that happened in thumbs after I was born that I, I just don't have it and I don't get it. Um, and I'll never get that. But, but uh, you know, uh, the generational differences have been with us forever. And, you know, these kids, uh, I, I look forward to having these kids be flummoxed by something that comes along 20 years from now. Hagen and I are both in the supposed demographic of people five years younger than He said, that. well, five years. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 36 in a couple of weeks, so I think I just missed the the cutoff. No, you're still 35. I guess. So. I'm still. I'm 35. I'm 36 in a couple months. So, right. Um, we're we're all old. Um, oh fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> From the bottom of my 50 year old heart, fuck you. <laughs> well, I'm too old for this. Um, well, I think the thing here. I mean, as a business story, this has been well covered. In fact, our colleagues on the Slate Money podcast talked about the economics of it this weekend, and the fact that you know, as streaming audiences go, this is a massive set of people watching things live streaming. It's clear why Amazon would want it. Uh, it seems possible that they might live stream things other than video games at some point. You know, as a business, this makes sense. This is where a huge number of people are convening to watch things in tandem. That is typically the sort of environment that advertisers are interested in, that people might subscribe to. So as a business thing, it makes sense. What I loved about your piece, Seth, and what I was very interested in spending some time watching Twitch this weekend is what a both familiar and unfamiliar cultural experience it is and what it might suggest about where culture is going. And there's there's sort of two poles here. One suggests that culture is going in just the direction you might expect, more digital, more virtual, less real human-to-human -human contact, et cetera. You know, you're, it's one thing to 
gather before a screen and watch the balletic grace of men playing soccer with their own bodies that they have cultivated and and um, developed the skills of over time. Or you know, it's U.S. Open season. Same goes for tennis. It's another to watch virtual avatars doing whatever people's super thumbs have manipulated them to do. But fundamentally, what you're seeing is a strange marriage of pixel and game design with the actual skills of the gamer themselves. And so it's an unfamiliar experience as a sport, but it's more virtual, more digital, more, you know, towards the apocalyptic future that Steve fears, I suppose, right? But the other thing that struck me as very almost nostalgic and charming about this network is is the liveness of it and the connection of it. The fact that what people seem to value about it is the live stream. I mean, I don't watch television live ever anymore. I mean, everything is digitally recorded. Everything is saved for later. The notion of a big new, basically, TV network where what's on is just what's on. Like, I can only watch you live streaming your game if I happen to be sitting down on my computer at the same time as you're sitting down, David Hagland, to play Grand Theft Auto V, as I know you do daily. Um there's something like charming and old school about that, like having a pen pal or something, right? Like you're, you're, you're like, oh yeah, I know that so and so likes to play League of Legends or whatever the heck it is on Thursday afternoons. So on Thursday afternoon after school, I'm gonna like sit down and, and you know, I know that's the day he streams it because he doesn't have soccer practice, and so I'm gonna sit down even though I'm a stranger far away and like watch him play this game. And there's something like sweet and personal and earnest about the liveness of it and the chattiness of it, which I did not expect. Well, and the other old school element that's related to but distinct from Twitch is the the tournaments that people have actually, as Seth mentioned, uh, showed up in droves for. Some of these championship battles have have drawn thousands of people. Uh, what was interesting to me about this, and, and despite uh, Julia's joke there, I, I have never played Grand Theft Auto uh, <laughs> and, and don't play video games at all, but I'm interested in them more in the abstract. There, you know, is this occasional argument that people have about whether video games are art or can be art, and um, you know, art is obviously a, a, a slippery term, uh, but I tend to think that, by and large, video games are not aspiring to the kind of experience we have with art. In fact, they're aspiring to the experience of sports. And so this seems to to realize that in a way that makes a great deal of sense. Um, you know, I don't enjoy watching video games. I spent too much time watching video games when I was young because I was very bad at them. So I was usually the person not playing, having just died. <laughs> But but I but I can see how if you take a rooting interest, which which people do, they start to have favorite players. The players come from various countries, so maybe they root for, you know, their fellow Americans or fellow South Koreans or what have you. Uh, I can see how watching these things unfold with that rooting interest could be entertaining in much the same way that watching any sport could be. Totally. And when you listen to the play-by-play of some of these live tournaments, the rhythms and the cadences of it are exactly what you would hear people describing a tennis match, people describing a soccer game, people describing a baseball game. When there are these big tournaments, they're really like guys, they're just doing like color commentary from the booth and it sounds exactly like, oh, missed that level. Oh, shield. He's got a shield on now. Okay. You know, like just... With, with full of jargon that in the same way that, you know, listening to baseball broadcasts when I was a kid uh, before I understood the rules of the game and in, in the car driving at night with my dad was just like gibberish. It's like that. It's like a familiar comforting rhythm of gibberish that if you understood the game would not be gibberish and would be sort of interesting. And what Twitch is capitalizing on is something is what we call the second screen, right? When we all watch live TV events like the Academy Awards or the Emmy and everyone is sitting on their tablet or their phone uh, tweeting along with that live event, that's what Twitch uh, really is, is doing. Everyone in the chat box on the right of the screen is talking to each other about what's going on in that, in that uh, StarCraft II playoff event, and they're all making fun of the players and writing R-E-K-T. I learned some new vocabulary. R-E-K-T, wrecked, is what you say when somebody dies or, or makes a bad move. And you'll just see, like, 15 in a row people writing in the chat box, wrecked, 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 wrecked. Um, and people are, are, are love to talk to each other and make jokes, and there are all sorts of in-jokes about what's going on on the screen. Um, and, you know, David, you talked about um, video games as art, and I still have hope that video games can be an art, and they'll be a, a different kind of art that relies a lot on interactivity. Um, but Twitch, uh, it, it, the way Twitch does it, that interactivity turns to be turns out to be a little bit more meta. It's, it's people interacting around what's happening in the game and talking about what's happening in the game together. Yeah, and you, as you connect with whoever's playing the game, you are also connecting with the community of people who are watching the game get played. And it strikes me that in terms of self-presentation on the internet, 
because of the liveness of it, it creates an unfilteredness to it. Like even if I have, you know, one of those YouTube haul video channels, say, where I like come back and I tell you everything I bought shopping, I'm still recording a video. And if I decide I don't want to tell you about the sweater I bought and I just want to tell you about the pants, I can edit the video or I can record another take. There's like a there's a focused self-presentation on the Internet. And there's something about the streaming of this that shifts the script a little bit on on the self-presentation because you're streaming live in real time. You can't delete the tweet. You can't refine your spelling or what photo you want to attach or anything else. I, I stumbled upon the channel of a guy, an Italian guy playing Grand Theft Auto V yesterday when I was watching it. I speak a little bit of Italian, so it was like really fun to hear a guy. He was basically getting mowed down. Like he totally was screwing up the game. He was in some hangar with a helicopter and then the helicopter disappeared and then five cars showed up and all started mowing him over and his body kept rolling this way and that. And he kept using like Italian slang that I hadn't heard in years and talking about how he was about to die. And I was like trying to reverse triangulate what tense he was using to say, I I think I'm about to die um, or I'm about to get killed, I think, actually. And um, then people were like being really mean to him in Italian in the chat box. And, you know, he didn't plan to go on and, and present himself as this crappy, very murderable Grand Theft Auto five player of Italy. But he did. It was like a very real, unfiltered <laughs> Italian travesty that I stumbled upon. And it felt genuine, like it felt um, in earnest as opposed to his like studied selfie. And there's something about the unfilteredness of it that it feels really fresh and appealing to me, even though I can't imagine actually watching this because I, I can't tell what's going on on the screen. Well, that's the thing. We should warn, you know, any uh, slightly older listeners who, who decide to dive into Twitch and, and give it a look, you will just be baffled. I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many acronyms. I had no idea what they were. So much video game slang I didn't understand. Even just the visual experience of it, you've got this little face in the bottom corner of the screen uh, of the actual gamer. He's usually wearing amber-tinted gaming glasses for like a clearer focus on the screen. He's got a big headset wrapped around his ear, uh, and he's saying uh, you know, all these acronyms you don't understand. And then, and then the game itself, for to me, it's just like a blur of like fireballs and lightning bolts and weird winged creatures zipping across the screen. It is a little overwhelming. So we don't, I don't want to give any of our listeners seizures. I just want them to be, to be aware of what they're going to encounter if they actually go to Twitch. All right. Well, there's much more to be said about the nature of gaming and your wonderful pieces up on Slate. It's called Why Would Anyone Watch Twitch? And Seth, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Seth. All right, Julia, before we go on, we have a little bit of business we need to get out of the way. What do we have? Next week, Steve, we are going to record our show from the Slate Retreat. Uh, dedicated listeners will remember last year, that's where I was reduced to Proustian tears with the sudden recollection of my favorite <laughs> children's book about a mouse architect. Uh, and once again, we're going to do a call-in show. And to do a call-in show, we need calls from you. So listeners, dear listeners, please call 725-222-3378. That's 725-222-FEST. And ask me, Steve, and Dana any question you've ever wanted to ask. You can propose a topic for discussion. You can just ask us about uh, Steve's gardening habits or anything else you'd like, the care and maintenance of chickens, twins, or a shoe collection totally absent of flip-flops. Again, it's 725-222-FEST. We always love getting your calls and questions. 725-222-3378. We can't wait to hear from you. All right, Steve, what's next? I also I just want to add quickly it's also that's always such a fun show the Mohonk show because in addition to you know Proustian tears that's also where we have to drag that hungover sack of shit Dana Stevens over the finish line every year <laughs> and that challenge is always that's good listening every year all right, all right. you're not allowed Moving to on. make fun of her her boozing <laughs> when she's not here Steve well she's here it's one thing <laughs> let the poor woman drink in for peace. all I know by the way Dana Steve for the record for all I know Dana Stevens is a complete teetotaler I don't think I've ever seen her have a sip of alcohol <laughs> all right anyway she's high on. on pixie dust all right well moving on Against Against X is an essay by Ivan Kreilkamp on the New Yorker website. It details the history of the Against essay, whose most famous example Kreilkamp points out, and I think it's fair to say, is Susan Sontag's Against Interpretation. Uh, Kreilkamp goes on to say, though, in recent years, there's been an Against X epidemic, against young adult literature, against interpretation, against method, against theory, against epistemology, against happiness, against transparency, against love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. 
As he goes on to say, the form announces a polemic, probably a cranky one and very likely an unfair one. However, against X is a symptom of a liberal culture's longing to escape its own strictures. It's the desire of thoughtful and nuanced people to shed their inhibitions and issue fearsome dicta. Julia, I'll start with you. You're the editor of Slate. Slate gets the rap every now and then of being against kind of everything in a way. Uh, (laughs) And this has inspired the hashtag Slate Pitches. Um, Not to personalize it, but I am really interested what you think uh, as an editor. I mean, is is there a way in which this form has become rote, uh, predictable, and what was meant to be, it derived its energy from its tendentiousness, but it's just not, it's not that anymore. Well, I think an against X essay is like, I don't know, it's like cayenne pepper. You don't want to use it in all your food. You don't want to apply it indiscriminately all over everything that you write or produce at a magazine. Uh, You know, as a writer, you don't want every piece you write to be against X. As an editor, you don't want every piece you publish to be against X. But I, what I appreciated about this against against X essay was its own nuance and lack of wild polemic. I mean, I think actually it was a rather lovely appreciation of the charms of the Against X essay, and it pointed out how bracing and fun it can be to consider and consider discarding an entire usually beloved or highly regarded category. It's a broad, almost impossible organizing principle for any sensible, intellectually rigorous argument. So inherently, these essays are to be argued with, have flaws, have limitations and weaknesses. And to write a good one, what you need to do is acknowledge and anticipate those and and kind of counter them and make your case anyway. And so they're fun. They can be fun. They can be tiresome if that is what the entirety of discourse becomes, either at one publication or on the internet as a whole. But um, I this I left this against against X essay appreciating the against X essay more than I had before I read the essay which suggests that, in fact, this New Yorker article was maybe something of a slate pitch because it was an Against Against X essay that actually convinced you that they were kind of great. Okay, my head is spinning and I need need David Hagelin to somehow get it to stop. Um, uh, Let's admit, David, as just a a premise that that anyone, the way he praises in the essay Sontag, I thought was totally appropriate. He, He says, you know, here it was handled beautifully with, you know, historical depth, but also wit with a a sense of uh, a degree of um, self-consciousness about the whole project. His point really is that when it's done poorly, it's done really poorly and that it's become a template less for someone to produce an outrageous but somewhat provocative opinion and more uh, to promote the supposed courage of the author and as clickbait. What did you make of that? Well, I, I wondered whether he's he's hit upon something real early on in, in the piece. He says that there has been an epidemic of against essays. And then one of the first he mentions is Sontag's, which is from 50 years ago. <laughs> I, I'm not sure they're quite as common. But a, that's as before going back to Cicero, by the way. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and like Julia, I came away from this piece more fond of the form than I was before. One of the, uh, I thought, more interesting things that he says is that the against essay is appealing to us as sort of liberal pluralists, that there's something bracing and satisfying about dismissing something so uh, high-handedly when you know that really you're just going to kind of tweak around the edges of, of conventional wisdom. And I think he's right. I think there's an appeal in this form for you know largely like-minded people. Um, but I actually think that, if anything... Online journalism is tending away from contrarianism of the sort that that Slate has been famous for toward, you know, celebrations of already popular opinions, because Mm -hmm. those things are equally and I would say probably more likely to be clickbait than things with which you disagree. Uh, It's true, of course, that, you know, there's a form of the against essay that is essentially trolling. But most of the ones he cites are not. Um, I thought that the uh, Ruth Graham essay that he mentions right up at the top, you know, some people dismiss that as trolling. But in fact, it clearly touched a nerve. You know, that was one of those things about which people still felt sensitive, you know, that mm. dismissing, you know, reading YA still had a kind of juice in it that, that that essay clearly found. So and I think that the against form still has juice in it, too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what I liked about most about his essay, it's a terrific piece of writing, is, um, you know, and against essay is a rhetorical performance. It's not it's not it's not meant to really represent a 
a fully internally coherent point of view, nor the precise feelings of the person who's writing it. Um, as he himself puts it, it's meant to have wit, bravado. There's a willful abandonment of fairness, balance, and measured restraint. And so in a way, it is, it's an act of fun. It's very different from an actual polemic or, or, or very often different from an actual polemic or certainly from a Jeremiah you know, the kind of out-and-out puritanical harangue by which an entire people is supposed to, you know, remake, remake itself away from fallenness or, or something. And um, it made me realize what I don't like about Against Essays is that they don't really have the full courage of one's uh, hatred, which is what invective writing uh, should have. That, that, in fact, you should wait and wait and wait and wait until that thing that you most sincerely despise takes its currently topical form and then unleash the full tsunami of your vitriol upon it um, with utter total sincerity and um, I mean certainly one benefit of the essay is that it reminds uh, reminds us that currently it's just a kind of performance and therefore it doesn't deserve being taken seriously the thing that I, I really liked about the essay was the historical perspective going you know as we said all the way back to you know, uh, ancient rhetoric rhetorical performances and early church rhetorical performances which risked you know, having your head cut off for voicing a certain kind of opinion. You were against something that was enormously powerful, you know, not just a, a kind of meaningless hallmark card piety, but, but, but an institutional force that had the power to imprison and behead you. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. Well, that's how he frames it. But if you look closely at the examples, they're generally upholding orthodoxy. And the ancient examples are from, uh, I believe, trials where, you know, someone who's been charged is being condemned, you know, against so-and-so the defendant, basically. Uh, so, I, you know, I think he's right that the stakes may have been higher, but I'm not sure that the against form was being used in, in the heterodox way that you're suggesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Although it's fascinating to read the examples going back that far, I'm not sure there's really a direct through line all the way from Cicero to the present. But I think you're right, Steve. Part of the fun of these essays is that they are inherently exercises, and that's also part of what renders them, you know, able to have a light touch and also somewhat dismissible. It's it's too bad we don't have Dana here this week because I'm realizing as we talk that her Against Flip-Flops was just one of these essays. I'm not sure that was its exact title, but it certainly could have been. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a classic of the modern version of the form, which is... Um, against a thing, a, a, a specific, not that significant in the world thing, but yet let me share my strong feelings and very deft observations. You know, another uh, modern example that I had not encountered before, maybe you guys had, but which he mentions is Against Chairs <laughs> from Jacobean Magazine. And he refers to it as a self-parody of the form. But having read it, I, I actually took it quite sincerely. I think the person who wrote it is, is more or less Against Chairs. <laughs> And he has a, a fair amount of historical uh, and even scientific uh, evidence to back him up in that in that polemic. So uh, to me, it, it, it showed, again, uh, how flexible uh, this form can be. Well, right. And how many pieces have we read in the last five years about oh, how bad sitting is and we should all be at standing desks and really you could help with your heart health? And, uh, you know, Dan Coyce did that piece for New York Magazine, The Future, where he stood for a month and never sat down. And I think some of us even taped podcasts with him in that form, which was very discomforting. So there have been many, many efforts to cover this particular social and health trend, which is that maybe sitting isn't as good for us as we thought it was or as obvious as we thought it was. And it was very fun to encounter them framed in this particular somewhat preposterous sounding against chairs framework. I don't think that was actually the best or most persuasive piece I read on the sitting plague. And I don't think it's the one that will drive me to use our standing desks here in the office. But it was it was uh, crisp as an organizing principle. Mm. The other thing I should mention, Steve, is that I think a slate pitch is slightly different than the against X formula, right? The the people who use slate pitch to knock slate suggest that we just argue the opposite of what you expect, no matter whether we believe it. I think internally, the way we think about it is that we prefer to make surprising arguments, but we only make arguments that we can support with intellectual rigor that we think are worth your time and consideration. But either way, the point is to argue something surprising or unexpected, I think against X has that surprisingness built into it. I mean, if you just say 
against hate or against sin or, you know, against gum on the bottom of your shoe. Like that's nobody wants to read that. That's just kind of like, right. We can all agree we're against that. So it's it plays on the same angle that it only makes sense to be against something that people might expect to be for, like interpretation, love or chairs. Um, but, you know, it's it's a more extreme and specific instance of the form. Yeah, it's true. No, they're not the same thing at all. I also want to say that, David, you're absolutely right. He says totally explicitly the scorching blasts were designed to shore up correct orthodoxy against a heretical enemy. But you missed the subtlety of my own polemic, which was against prepping the third topic fully. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or against close reading or comprehension, really. Does that mean (laughs) against basic comprehension? Does that mean we're Uh, in favor of endorsements here, Steve? (laughs) I think it means we're so very extremely in favor of endorsements. Let me say quickly before we do that, that the essay is by Ivan Kralkamp, who apparently is a English professor at Indiana University, and it's called Against Against X, and it's uh, on the New Yorker website. Ah, right. Now is the moment in our program where we endorse. David, what do you have? I have a, a singer I want to endorse, and uh, specifically one of her songs. And as is typical with me, this is a singer who I've only recently learned about, though she died 10 years ago. And the heyday of her recording career, if it can be called that, was uh, 30 years before that. Her name is Phyllis Dillon. She's a rock steady singer from Jamaica, and uh, she, you know, started out very young, but only recorded for a few years uh, before I think basically retiring at age 23, and then coming out of retirement for a little while in the late 90s. But then uh, she died in 2004 at the age of 56. And the song in particular I would direct people to is "Perfidia," which is a, a fairly famous uh, song. Uh, written, I believe, in the 30s or 40s, uh, first in Spanish, and it appears in Casablanca. It's in three of Wong Kar Wai's movies. Uh, the version she sings is in English, and it's just a, a lovely song. She has a beautiful voice. And if, like me, you're not really used to hearing uh, Jamaican music sung by a woman, there's something particularly charming in her recordings. Mm. All right, Julia, what do you have? I am endorsing a new book. It's actually coming out on Thursday. It's called Women in Clothes, and it's by Sheila Hetty, Heidi Julevitz, and Leanne Shapton, with, I think the title says, 639 Others. This book was pressed into my hands by someone when I confessed that I find it very boring to read about fashion. I think we talked about this a little bit when we did our Normcore segment earlier this year, in which I may have stated that the rise of Normcore is the first seemingly interesting or new fashion trend that I've heard about or read about or thought about in about 10 years. It feels like we live in a constant era of, oh, high, low, mix it up, blah, 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 and all the train the trends cycle around and there's nothing new to read. Um, and a friend of mine said, if you feel that way, read this book and it will make you feel there are many, many new and exciting and interesting things to read about fashion. And it is, in fact, true. This is a book about how women relate to their clothes. It's a series of surveys, essays, photographs, many other interesting components. There's some illustrations that just gets at what it feels like to put on clothes and how they shape the way you encounter the world. And there's just lots of good juice in here and good writing from people famous and un. And I highly recommend that you pick it up. Again, Mm. it's Women in Clothes. Fantastic. All right. Well, this uh, this week I'm going to do something I probably haven't done in a long time. I'm going to endorse a book that I read. Um, and the reason I haven't read books recently is my available bandwidth for other people's writings as I struggle to finish my own book has been teeny tiny. But I found myself stuck in the mountains in a house with a group of people who every night, you know, lit candles and, you know, turned down the lights and read for two hours before they went to bed. And uh, I had nothing. I brought nothing with me on the theory that I still had no bandwidth uh, to uh, spare. And I was totally wrong. And I, I was desperate to read something. I look, rummaged around the shelves of this uh, little farmhouse. And I found a book actually I've been wanting to read for a long time. It's called A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush by the uh, British travel writer Eric Newby from the late 50s. Newby is one of the great travel writers of all time. I mean, he's up there with Patrick Lee Fermer and Paul Theroux, all the greats. He's He's... And this is a a total masterpiece. He wrote wonderful other books, Love and War and the Apennines, which I had read. It is such a great book. It's not, it's it's hard to describe the perfection of its very English whimsy. It's 
acute sensitivity to people and place. It begins unexpectedly. I didn't know this about Newby, that after the war, he had incredible adventures in the Second World War, after which he became a fashion worker. Uh, uh, he, he, he worked in the fashion industry in England, in London. It begins with this Evelyn Waugh quality satire of uh, the world that he finds himself immersed in, but completely unmoved by. And then this bizarre opportunity falls directly in his lap to go to the mountains around uh, Afghanistan and the Nuristan region, as I understand it, the Hindu Kush, um, and go mountaineering, which he's never done before. So he immediately has to go to Wales in order to learn how to climb a mountain properly, which is the, the, the brilliance of the, co- of the comic rendering are just, it's just one of the great books I've ever read. And it's out of print ridiculously, uh, in, at least in the United States. You can get it on Amazon or A Libris in a secondhand copy for 10 bucks or so. Unfortunately, it's not available for a penny. But in addition to the endorsement, it's a plea to some U.S. publisher to acquire the rights and put it out again. It often appears with a preface by Evelyn Waugh, who um, rightly admired it enormously. Um, but the fact that one can't readily get one's uh, hand on it in the travel section of a good you know, independent bookstore is t- a total crime. Anyway, it's called A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush. It's by Eric Newby. Uh, pound the table. Great book. There's nothing better than a book you discover in the corner of a place you're staying without a book to read. I can like feel the like stiff, crinkly pages of that book, even though I don't know if they were actually stiff or crinkly. I'm like smelling the musty smell of, of you know, beach house books I've read in years past. I, I know, right? I mean, it's just a great experience that book can just be discarded, you know. That to it, me, for all that I'm a digital apologist on this show, that's like, that's one of the things that I will miss when print books are dead and gone is the like discovering, because they will be, uh, yes. is, <laughs> is the discovering of someone else's discarded book. Like you can't, discovering someone else's like used ancient Kindle in the corner of the beach house is probably like salt encrusted, broken, it won't have a charger. You're screwed. You can't read that copy of, you know, pixelated Gone Girl. It'll it'll be a bummer. Um, All right. Well, on that note, uh, David, thank you so much for coming in and talking. Thanks. It was good to be here. Julia, uh, as always, a total pleasure. So fun to have you back, Steve. Great to be back. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest our producer is ann hepperman and our intern is josephine livingston the executive producer of slate podcast is andy bowers and our twitter feed is slate cult fest for david hagland and julia turner i'm Stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week do you Yeah, yeah.